uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. I'm Scott Schiff with the Atlas Society. We have Atlas Society senior scholars Stephen Hicks and Richard Salzman uh, discussing an objectivist perspective on Mark Andreessen's recent Tech Optimist Manifesto. Uh, after their opening remarks, we're going to open it up for questions. So please raise your hand if you want to ask a question. We'll try to get to as many as possible. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for doing this today. We'll go ahead and start with you. Um, tell us about the manifesto. All right. Uh, hi, Scott. Thanks for uh, for hosting. Uh, Mark Andreessen is uh, now a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley and uh, a heavyweight in that ecosystem. Prior to that, he was a software developer and uh, uh, made his name and his fortune being uh, the, the developer of, or co-founder, I think, of one of the early web browsers. Uh, so he has now for a generation been on the front lines of technological and uh, capitalist development, Silicon Valley, uh, and so forth. So what was uh, interesting, encouraging, and fascinating was this past month, he published a 5,000 or so word manifesto uh, called the Techno Optimist Manifesto. And because of his stature, it had immediately a million readers around the world and uh, uh, much agreement and a lot of uh, vigorous disagreement. Now, this is advertised as an objectivist uh, response or perspective on it. And from my objectivist perspective, I found myself very happy, very uh, <laughs> enthusiastic to see reflected in a manifesto that's reaching millions of people all of the themes, uh, or let me say at least 90 plus percent of the themes that uh, we objectivists have been arguing for culturally for uh, 50 or, or 60 years or so. So uh, he is an optimist. Uh, he's an optimist about human beings, about human intelligence. He's an optimist about the power of freedom. He's an optimist about the power of markets to solve problems, to bring people together peacefully, to work out win-win transactions. He is uh, especially optimistic about the power of technology to uh, solve virtually all, all human problems. So on the positive side, uh, virtually all of the themes that objectivism as a philosophy argues that we need to prize human intelligence, human reason, the scientific method that uh, stems from a, a, a fully worked out uh, development of, uh, of, of human reason, all of the issues of character that go into being the kind of person who can live a self-responsible life, who can live freely, uh, become an actively produce, productive person, uh, a discoverer of new technologies and new, new methodologies, the ambition, the achievement orientation, the courage in the face of risk, uh, the, the, the pride and self-esteem, uh, thinking that your life is valuable and important, that you want to make the best of it, the individualism, the uh, strong sense of agency that one is in control of one's life. So all of those cognitive themes, all of those uh, uh, moral themes that are central to objectivism are, are uh, not, not merely reflected, but uh, uh, explicitly part of 
Andreasen's manifesto. Uh, he goes through uh, b- brief histories of uh, technology, particularly in the modern world, uh, you know, the problems that had plagued human beings for as long as human beings had been around, you know, uh, uh, you know, the darkness and being uh, kind of only able to uh, do what we want to do for the most part during sunlight hours. We solve that problem with, uh, with electricity. The problem of coldness and uh, being at the mercy of the cold weather. Uh, we develop sources of heating, uh, in many cases, indoor heating. The countervailing problem on the other season, the problem of heat and excessive heat. Well, again, technology solves the problem. We uh, develop uh, uh, air conditioning that we are often socially isolated. Well, we develop technologies, amazing transportation systems and the internet that enables us to, uh, to be as social as we, as we want to be. Being at the mercy for most of human history of that pandem- pandemics, uh, uh, developing uh, the you know, sciences of, of chemistry and biology and then vaccinations and so forth to largely solve many of those problems. And then the big one, problem of poverty, uh, uh, and then all of the things that are downstream from the problem of poverty, we've been able to create technologies of, of abundance. And that a lot of that occurred uh, 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 in the last two to three centuries. So human beings finally figured out some pretty fundamental things two to three centuries ago, and uh, we now are are living in the in the benefits of all of that. So uh, it's very encouraging to see all of these themes. It's also as encouraging as that on the positive side, as Andreasen goes through, he gives credit and explicit mention to many of the people whom uh, those of us who are objectivist or or fellow travelers, uh, enlightenment thinkers, uh, free market thinkers, uh, uh, other forms of uh, pro-technology thinking. So, uh, you know, he mentions explicitly, for example, Julian Simon, Friedrich Hayek, uh, uh, Milton Friedman, uh, Thomas Sowell, among kind of recent giants in, in that tradition. He's well-informed on the uh, the historical tradition. He mentions David Ricardo, Adam Smith, uh, and he comes very close to mentioning Aristotle. Uh, he uh, does use the concept of eudaimonia when he is talking about uh, uh, the, the virtues and values of techno-optimism, and that eudaimonia Nia concept is directly out of Aristotle, and many of the specific values and virtues that Andreasen mentions are are strongly Aristotelian. Uh, he also mentions uh, several philosophers. Uh, uh, he mentions Adam Smith primarily as an economist, but he's also read him uh, as a as a moral philosopher. He uh, expl- explicitly mentions Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, the kind of romantic adventure approach to life that uh, Nietzsche in some of his moods urges and uh, that many of us respond to uh, positive when we when we read Nietzsche you know, uh, to see oneself as, as, as uh, being able to give birth to a dancing star, that dancing star metaphor out of uh, out of Nietzsche uh, and he quotes, extensively uh, from that uh, from that very that very section and then he goes on uh, also in a very informed way to uh, to, uh, to to mention and recommend other current thinkers who are at the forefront of uh, our understanding of 
technology, uh, capitalism, and the, uh, the merger of, of the two of them. So all of that is uh, extraordinarily encouraging. If uh, one has not yet read the Techno-Optimist Manifesto, I recommend that you, you do so. It's uh, well worth 20 minutes of your time. Lots of excellent follow-up links, and uh, I think you'll find it encouraging. Now, at the same time, he's uh, well aware that everything he says is controversial. And, uh, of course, there are uh, kind of automatic enemies uh, of anybody who is optimistic. So there are the pessimists on principle. There are also, though, uh, people who are uh, prominent in our culture who are anti-capitalist, anti-markets, uh, anti-technology, various forms of uh, neo-Luddism out there as well. Uh, and uh, he identifies uh, these enemies as enemies explicitly and has uh, uh, brief counters to, to each of those points. At the same time, uh, people who are not uh, in principle opposed to optimism and are opposed to technology and its and its developments, uh, people who have you know standard worries of you know, the, you know are we going to unleash Frankenstein? Uh, will this cause concentrations of power and monopolies and so forth? Uh, he's aware that uh, some people who are reasonable will have the reasonable sorts of worry, and he uh, he takes those up as well. Uh, he's also uh, very forthright on the uh, the uh, the politics, uh, naming the enemies of technology and the enemies of optimism, the enemies of progress. progress. And it's all of the same ones that we uh, objectivists have been arguing against for, for a while now. Statism, collectivism, authoritarianism, the idea of central planning, the problems of bureaucracies, entrenched bureaucracies, uh, cronyism, uh, and all of the various forms of corruption. Uh, people who, for various ideological reasons, want to control our thinking, control our speech. Uh, he is uh, explicit in identifying these people as enemies and putting them on notice that uh, that he is uh, he's aware of them. So uh, those were my initial remarks. See, I've gone on for about 10 minutes or so. I've got some other uh, things I want to say, but I don't want to monopolize the entire discussion. So, Scott, let me kick it back to you for a little bit of give and take here. What uh, what should we do next? Yeah, uh, I appreciate you doing that. Uh, we did get the, uh, Richard here, so I do want to throw it over to Richard for some of his initial thoughts, and then we'll uh, maybe open it up to some questions and get some of your other thoughts, Stephen. Thanks. Great, Scott. Can everyone hear me? Yes. I totally endorse your take, Stephen. I uh, saw those great elements of Andreessen's work as well. I think uh, the enemies list is long, uh, maybe a bit too long and too cryptic, but I, I'll get back to that. But I think he's got most of the right ones. But but I want, wanted to also say that right up front, he has a brief section, which as an economist, I just want to endorse his very accurate in, under the section called lies. And here's a couple, here's some of them. That tech takes jobs. That tech reduces wages. That tech increases inequality. I assume he here means inequality of wealth. That it threatens health. That it ruins the environment. Here's my favorite. Corrupts children. <laughs> my, more psychology than anything. But he's right on all these things. On the, on the inequality 
he doesn't really quite say why. He's just, and a lot of these are just assertions, but I can at least report to you that all the literature and all the empirics behind these kind of statements is true. Um, the, the, the reduces wages is the least um, plausible one. And because technology, as we know, and if that's just a fancy word for tools and capital, obviously increases our productive prowess and labor-saving devices and anything that increases our productivity is going to increase our wages. I will say that it, it is a common complaint of uh, technological advance that the inequality that's created is um, the difference between those who become skilled and able to use technology and those who don't. Now, but I believe as an economist, the, the trend in capitalism is that there are always going to be leaders and then followers, and the followers aren't, you know, left in dire uh, poverty and dire unskilled labor. They themselves move up. But regardless, uh, equality of result shouldn't be the standard anyway. I'm not saying he goes there. I'm not saying he's an egalitarian. But I think part of the defense of tech progress should be a kind of unalloyed, unabashed defense of inequality if that's what the result is. If the result is some people are more technologically advanced and wealthier than others, then so be it. If that's due to, you know, really uncapitalist things like um, public schools, which, you know, retard the development of human capital, including skill, that that is obviously a problem of socialism, um, not capitalism. Um, I also wanted to say that on markets, and again, I'm mostly sticking here to uh, the more the market uh, comments he makes. He has a section number four called markets. And here, I, I think it's very interesting. He says things that are really kind of uncontroversial in the beginning, but then conventional, at least to our ears, at the tail end of this section. So the opening is, free markets are the most effective way to organize a technological economy. Well, that, that to, to organize economy sounds a bit too top-down, but nonetheless, he's endorsing free markets. He also says, this is very good, this is Austrian economics, he says the market economy is a discovery mechanism, a form of intelligence of exploration, evolution, adaptation. That's really very good stuff. He also talks about market discipline that sellers and buyers learn through the profit and loss system of what to do and uh, what not to do. Um, it, and also a little uh, ideology here, which is good. Markets, he says, are inherently individualistic, an individualistic way to achieve superior economic outcomes. Well, that's consistent with his other theme of resisting collectivism and and the trend towards socialism and fascism and other things. Now, just so you know, he does have a kind of conventional view that self-interest is, uh, if not immoral, uh, amoral. But that was the Adam Smith view. So in this case, he actually cites Smith. He says, uh, he says um, uh, this system, this free market system, doesn't require people to be morally perfect. Doesn't, doesn't require them to be benevolent. And then he goes on to the cite that famous Adam Smith quote about well, it's not from the benevolence of the, the baker and the brewer, you know, that we get our dinner, but but from their self-interest. And so uh, he's endorsing that view. And, and as we know, that's Adam Smith's view that while self-interest might have practical uh, prosperity benefits, it's not really a moral motive. And he definitely endorses that view. Andreessen endorses that view. So it's not, in the objectivist sense, it's not a, it's not a, uh, a you know, unreconstructed, un, un diluted defense of rational self-interest. Also, he goes on, just to know that that's not just a, you know, a glitch in his presentation, later, later in that section he says, the ultimate quote I'm quoting here, the ultimate moral defense of markets 
is that they divert people who would otherwise raise armies and start religions <laughs> into peacefully productive pursuits, unquote. Um, that's kind of interesting because uh, people who would otherwise, I don't know, he's basically saying do irrational things or initiate force. You know, it's almost like he's saying we might be wired that way. So thankfully, we have this thing called markets where, where people can spend their time in more peaceful, productive pursuits rather than these others. So I thought that was a very I thought that was kind of a strange, possibly malevolent view of, of people, which is at odds with the optimism theme of the entire the entire one. Now, the other thing is warning at the end about enemies, including, as Stephen mentioned, socialism and and any kind of collectivism. It is interesting because in the markets section, he says, quote, markets are the way to generate societal wealth. For everything else that we want to pay for, including social welfare programs, unquote. And then later he says there's no conflict. I'm quoting again, no conflict between capitalist profits and a social welfare system that protects the vulnerable, unquote. So this is an inconsistency. Uh, again, it's, um, I, I don't know if it's, uh, you know, absolutely fundamental, uh, fundamentally contradictory to his whole theme, but you, you can't simultaneously embrace capitalism. And then what amounts here to the mixed system. I mean, the welfare state is the mixed system that we have today, and the mixture is becoming more and more government, which is, in part, the problem I think he's trying to address. So he doesn't help himself here by saying, by kind of appeasing those critics who might say, what are you, what are you for, you know, complete, pure, laissez-faire capitalism? You hear he's kind of backpacking, backpedaling a little bit, saying, no, 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 it's still have a welfare state here, still speaking in terms of collectivist uh, societal wealth. So um, that's the problem. I have other things to say, but I, I too, didn't want to monologue, so I, I just wanted to deal with that section called markets. I, I do like the way he's organized it by sections, so and the, some of the sections are longer and some are shorter, but you know, there's at least a kind of a structure here to it as well. And it ends with something as sweeping as uh, the meaning of life, which is kind of cool. We could talk about that section. Yeah. So uh, just it, it seems like you both uh, the overall report is positive, uh, even though there may be, you know, he's not an objectivist and he may not frame everything from a, you know, rational egoism perspective. Yes, I would certainly say it that way. And I think we can maybe talk, if anyone wants to talk about, you know, is it a false alternative to say optimism versus pessimism? It really should be realism. But that maybe is just a nitpick. I, I thought one of the better sections was on intelligence. I'm quoting from it here. It's called intelligence, the section. We believe intelligence is the ultimate engine of progress. Intelligence makes everything better. Smart people in smart societies outperform less smart ones on virtually every metric. There's a lot of uh, a real recognition, and I think this would be true of someone, anyone recognizing technology. We're talking about the men of the mind, the women of the mind, the creators in all fields, and the idea that that's the source of wealth, You know, resisting this kind of Marxist materialist physicalist claim uh, that is still common out there is very good. And of course, that feeds into a, a brief discussion of artificial intelligence. He kind of jokingly says artificial intelligence is our alchemy, our philosopher's stone. He certainly doesn't believe in that. He's just saying it's really just so marvelous that there's this thing called artificial intelligence. So I, I guess that shouldn't should surprise the readers. If this is a techno optimist, he's also going to be an optimist, as, as I am, on uh, AI 
So we can talk about that as well. But yes, Scott, I, I, my overall assessment is this is a, a really um, well done piece. I think it's short enough and philosophic enough and and tech savvy enough to be a good read for people in the tech field, you know, who may lean left. And at, and at one point he actually says, we're not advocating any political philosophy here. He calls it a material philosophy. And then he says something like, even though many of us are left wing, which I thought was interesting. I don't know where he gets that idea, but, but if you could take the tech optimists and the tech pessimists and then <laughs> sort them out by really, are some of them left leaning and some of them right leaning? I, I, I haven't done a study of it myself, but why the left leaning would be optimists, I don't know. Left leaning to me sounds Marxist, sounds Luddite, sounds um, you know, pre-modern. And so that mix I think is interesting. But he if he's trying to reach left leaning people who love technology, that's a con I would think that's a conflict in in the left leaning person's mind. And if they could be brought toward the idea of a freer society and less government intervention, uh, all the better. Great. I mean, um, in, one thing that stuck out to me was that at the end, there's a whole list of people that he wants to give credit to. And I saw about one, um, you know, fictional character on there. And there may have been more, but it was, uh, you know, it was John Galt and, and Rand is not mentioned. What's uh, yeah. What's going on there? Yeah, I wanted to uh, take that point up. I think uh, if we were to try to put philosophical uh, and economic and technological labels on him, then he is in his economic approach, clearly uh, Austrian and neoclassical. So he wants to combine the two. And he does explicitly mention Hayek. He does explicitly mention in the essay, uh, Milton Friedman. And then there's uh, this list of patron saints of techno-optimism. He gives a, a, a list of names of people he is endorsing and suggesting for further reading. Ludwig von Mises appears on, on that list. Um, now, uh, I'm, I'm trying to work my way to your point about the, the John Galt reference here. Uh, I think Richard is right that uh, he's not an objectivist, uh, that he is by means of that Adam Smith quotation, signaling a certain amount of unease about a morality of egoism. Uh, but I do want to just say that it might be less uh, than we think, because if we look through the list of virtues that Andreessen is talking about, they're all individualistic virtues. He, uh, he says we need to be individualistic yeah. on principle, yeah. to take seriously agency, and then the list of virtues, pride, self-esteem, valuing achievement, being ambitious, being courageous in the face of face of risk, uh, seeing your life as an adventure and uh, as a great romance that we should be uh, dancing uh, our way through lives. All of that is a very objectivist ethic, even if he doesn't call it objectivist ethic. Um, so, um, uh, uh, this might be too cutesy, but I want to say that I think, uh, actually Andreessen is an objectivist, or at least say 98% an objectivist, but he's in the closet. 
And uh, by in the closet, what I mean is if you look at all of the people he mentions explicitly, uh, they are all of the people that we have read, that we have endorsed, that we consider uh, being in our in our in our uh, our, our, our our orbit. And uh, so he's an extraordinarily well-read man. So he has read Milton Friedman. He's read Hayek. He's read uh, you know, Julian Simon. He's read Schumpeter. He's read uh, uh, Ludwig von Mises. Uh, and then he's read some more obscure people uh, who would be known to us, you know, people like Isabel Patterson. And he mentions her and recommends her. Uh, he's read Israel Kirzner, another Austrian school. He's read Bastiat. He's read Rose Wilder Lane. And uh, he recommends these people, and as well as the, the Nietzsche reference. So there is this big question then. Uh, why has he not mentioned Ayn Rand explicitly in the manifesto? And why does she not appear explicitly in the, uh, the list of patron saints of this movement? Uh, instead, what we do get is this mention of John Galt, who is right on the list of uh, the patron saints there. So I think that is intentional. Uh, that is a coded way for Andreasen to signal that he thinks Ayn Rand is great, that Ayn Rand has been an influence on her, but he does not want to mention her explicitly. For those who are in the know, they will know what that means. They will, they will, they will find out. But uh, he doesn't want to go public, and I think that's the, the in-the-closet uh, point. So why he doesn't want to go public with uh, an explicit Ayn Rand mention, I think that raises some other interesting questions. But I think, uh, Scott, that's a good catch noting that. Stephen, if uh, uh, Scott, Stephen, if I could interject quickly here. I also interpret the mention of Galt, especially when you understand what this manifesto is about, he, he is basically saying Galt is the engineer. Galt is the technologist. Galt is the one, you know, that invented the motor, invented the, you know, when he's in Galt's Gulch, they had the, you know, the voice activated, opening the, the vault and remember all that. So I think, it, I think it could be that he doesn't say Ayn Rand because he's basically saying, well, I don't want to endorse objectivism but I want to endorse this particular character mm. in that book. In other words, he didn't say Francisco. He didn't say Frank. Reardon. He didn't say Hank Reardon. He didn't say. Didn't even say. I could have said um, Rourke. I, I'm guessing that he picked Galt because of his profession. Mm. But uh, that's a guess. Yeah. Yeah. Although uh, uh, he is the hero of Atlas Shrugged, and uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's not as quite as narrow as the engineering professional, though I think clearly that's that's important. Galt is the perfect combination of scientist and uh, engineer and philosopher. So, uh, yeah. Um, so just to follow up on that, I think uh, in a way, unlike many of the other figures whom he's willing to mention explicitly, Rand still is more polarizing, so he doesn't want to give the uh, enemies of the techno-optimist manifesto just, oh, there's another objectivist or it's just another Ayn Rand lover. Um, he's trying to create a not a huge tent, but a big enough tent. He doesn't want, from his perspective, unnecessarily to alienate certain people because she's such a, uh, a potential alienator. 
That's a fascinating perspective, uh, just that uh, there's almost uh, echoes of the fountainhead that she's so precious to him that she uh, he didn't want to share her with the world or something, yeah. that's the way yeah. he described it. <laughs> um, is uh, So what is Andreessen trying to do? Is he trying to create a movement? I think so, yeah. I think uh, this is meant to be, uh, as manifestos are, a, a, a document that rallies like-minded people uh, and gets them talking to each other and to, to provide an overall framework for them to think in terms of. I think it's also uh, meant for people who are um, you know, optimistic, but they are feeling embattered by waves of pessimism uh, to have uh, a little more starch in their shirts or a little more uh, hopeful outlook that there are other like-minded people out there who are uh, mounting the ramparts and so they're more likely to join forces. So I think, yes, it's meant to be in that direction. Uh, Scott, if I could, I, I just want to mention something on the energy section. Sure. Uh, before I read the energy section, my thought was, well, if this is a tech optimist, uh, one critique I would have would be um, of, of today's approach is um, people are suspicious of many hostile to fossil fuels. They claim to worry about emissions, CO2 emissions. So there's a paradox because they also tend to oppose nuclear which doesn't have emissions. And then third, they seem to be endorsing price, precisely those uh, uniquely pre-industrial energy sources that are uh, you know, not able to uphold what we have today, namely windmills and sun and wood burning. So, and as you look at this section, he, you know, he says energy is life. It should be in an upward spiral. The more energy we have, the more people we can have. He's very much against the depopulation, as you can tell. But interestingly, he, he does have a section on nuclear. He doesn't really quite say why the culture is anti-nuclear. He cites um, the Atomic Energy Commissioner in 1953. He cites what Nixon mentioned in 1973, that we should have 1,000 nuclear plants by the year 2000. Of course, as we know, we reached a peak of 110 only in the United States, and they've decommissioned 20 of them. So I think we're down to 80. So I think this section could have been much more pro-fossil fuels and much more critical of why the, uh, why the culture and why the intellectuals and why the leftists are against nuclear energy. And there's an optimism here about, well, then he said, quote, then the second energy silver bullet is coming, nuclear fusion. OK, well, maybe, but not if the Luddites get their way. They're not even allowing uh, the building of nuclear plants that were you know discovered in the 40s and 50s or so. So it's also interesting from this section, you do see a premise that's environmentalist, which is kind of sad because he refers to the natural environment. Quote, we believe energy need not expand to the detriment of the natural environment unquote uh if this was really stronger he could have said listen capitalism is an environment a free a free system is an environment humans are part of that environment we're not non-natural i don't think he's philosophical enough for that and so he's not quite aware of why there's so much animosity toward technologically advanced energy but it really definitely belongs in a in a tech 
savvy tech optimist manifesto has to be much better on why energy, the hostility toward energy is, is so great. But there's more than a few mentions of this idea of the natural environment seemingly excluding man. I'll just leave you with one more quote. We believe technology is the solution to environmental degradation. Wow. A technologically advanced society improves the natural environment. A technologically stagnant society ruins it. So, unquote. So he definitely thinks of the natural environment as the environment apart from man, which is the environmentalist um, premise that's really hurting us. Uh, I'm going to push a little back on that. I think there might be over-reading there. I think he's aware of the people who have this zero-sum view between humans and the environment. Uh, I think it's important that in both cases, he's putting it negatively. There is no inherent conflict between human aspirations and the environment. Um, And then he goes on to say that it should properly be win-win, right? A technologically advanced society improves the natural environment. So I think he's... Uh, you know, aware of the other position, and he's using that language only in describing the other position, but that's not, in fact, his position. I'll uh leave that there. Um, I wanted to touch on uh. You know, he makes some reference to becoming technological Superman, and he um. Am I reading too much in to see any kind of potential uh, Nietzsche overtones, the Ubermensch? Uh, I think not in Nietzsche's way, but uh, in just a more generic way that we can uh, become superior as human beings in our intelligence, in our moral character, in our ability to live superior lives, better lives, Uh, not in any uh, Nietzschean uh, authoritarian, aristocratic way. He explicitly rejects those. I think, though, Stephen, there is in this section, I agree with you, it's not Nietzschean in that sense, but the, the, the typical phrase we hear all the time that it's important to do something bigger than yourself, you know, to achieve something bigger yourself, the idea that the self itself needs to be um, surpassed. He does have this section where he says, it's it's under the Becoming Technological Superman section, he says, um, uh, we believe uh, this means technical education, but it also means going hands-on, gaining practical skills, working within and leading teams, now here's the key, aspiring to build something greater than oneself, aspiring to work with others to build something greater as a group, we believe the natural human drive to make things, a natural human drive, to gain territory, to explore the unknown can be channeled productively into building technology. I think that's the only hint I see in here of um, this idea that, well, the Superman is the one who goes beyond himself. And if, if he's saying, you know, that's achievable only in a group context, well, there's a certain truth to that, of course. If you're working in isolation. Um, you're not going to achieve as much as you could if you're in a, you know, a team, an engineering team, a technologically advanced company, those kind of things. But there is this, there is that little hint, I think you'd admit, right, of him saying, 
um, we need to aspire to something greater than oneself. That's the line. I mean, he actually uses the line. So there, there's that hint of him saying that the one that working on your own is inferior. Even if not Nietzsche, there's a uh, type of, you know, uh, these tech leaders are, are kind of technocrats where they think, you know, oh, this time we can make socialism work or UBI or whatever their pet projects are, even, you know, moving to a system where you don't need fossil fuels. They think they, they can figure it out. And, yeah. You know, yeah. And he, yeah, and he also has this very positive vision. Later down, he says, we believe that we are, have been, and always will be the masters of technology, not mastered by technology. Victim mentality is a curse in every domain of life, including our relationship with technology. We are not victims. We are conquerors. There's really good stuff. Quote, we believe in nature, but also believe in overcoming nature. Well, that's not quite Francis Bacon, who said the nature to be commanded must be obeyed. But, quote, we are not primitives cowering in fear of the lightning bolt we are <laughs> we are the apex predator the lightning works for us we believe in greatness this is good stuff i like yeah. it did you like that stuff Stephen? oh yeah it's amazing good stuff. yeah, yeah. I, I, one uh, question i want to put uh, out you know, to richard to scott and uh, to, to everyone uh, in the room is uh, i found as i was reading through the uh, enemies section that uh, there was a very long list of enemies yeah and it was good that he was identifying them. And at the same time, I started to feel my spirits flagging. It's, oh, my goodness, we have to fight on so many fronts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and, and, and we know how hateful some of these people are in these various, these various subgroups. But then he makes a very interesting point. He says, uh, basically, he says, you know, for the last two or three centuries, there have been all of these enemies doing their damnedest. Yeah. To try to destroy technology, destroy capitalism, destroy the free society, uh, turn our lives into boring schmoo kinds of lives. So despite the number of enemies and all of the resources and the power of their arguments, they've not been able to stop us. And precisely in the last couple of centuries, we have made more progress uh, in uh, than at any point in human history. And I found that very encouraging, that's to say. <laughs> um, uh, maybe we don't need to worry about these enemies quite as much as uh, sometimes we do worry about them. Yes, and this section also says um, we're not talking about bad people, but bad ideas. So that's very good. Uh, he does name groups. I mean, he na or, you know, or he names uh, political systems like uh, he has a list, statism, authoritarianism collectivism, mm -hmm. central planning. That's all good stuff. At one point, he actually refer, refers to gerontocracy, which is ruled by, the, ruled by the old. I thought that was funny because that's kind of what's going on. But, but Stephen, one of the things I liked about it is when he got conceptual. For example, he said, uh, I'm looking here, he says, one of them is um, uh, the precautionary principle. Now, for those who don't know, you know, the precautionary principle is like so anti-risk. We saw this in covid a kind of phobia of any kind of risk taking, and and so it's not, it's just it's not just uh, be cautious, it's it's precaution, <laughs> precaution, and if you look up the precautionary principle, it is really irrational in many senses. But but the fact that he's aware of that kind of stuff, that's not really political as much as it is, I would say, epistemological. 
you know, the mm-hmm. over uh, dramatizing and the over exaggerate the exaggeration of the risks we face. So in that sense, although it's a long, as we said, a long enemies list, he does have these cons- conceptual enemies, if you will. One, one nice list he had was our enemy is stagnation. Then right after that, anti-ambition, anti-striving, anti-achievement, anti-greatness. Those are those are Ayn Rand type uh, sentiments, obviously, and uh, he's got them. Yeah. I uh, I also made a note of that point you just uh, the, the sentence you mentioned earlier that our enemies are not bad people but rather bad ideas. Yep. Uh, and I I think Andreasen is a very nice guy, uh, and that's the kind of thing that nice guys will say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hate the sin, not the sinner, and all right, that. Right. Right. Yeah. At the yeah. same time, he, uh, at various other points, does mention uh, that, that it's not just bad ideas. It is, in fact, bad people. There are people who are driven by resentment. Uh, and that's not an idea. That's that's an emotion that actual people have that leads them to want to be yeah. destructive in various ways. Uh, yeah. I think that's more of a rhetorical point than an actual point. It's not the ideas in some Hegelian way are just doing things. It's <laughs> bad ideas used by by uh, by bad people. But he doesn't. He pulls that punch rather than uh, um, you know, having to be having to be nasty. He he also mentions something that might interest people because there's a whole field in economics called growth theory, and it's not it's not having to do with the business cycle or seasonal aspects of things, but long term. Uh, economic growth and progress, the, the the ingredients that go into that. And the standard uh, kind of classical economics view was land, labor, and capital. They'd always say land, labor, and capital. You need land, you need natural resources, labor, and, you know, not distinguishing what kind of labor, and then capital equipment tools. It's only in the 50s and afterwards um, with Solo and others that they started putting in technology. And it, uh, to me, it's just capital advanced you know so capital isn't just you know any spade or tool but but nonetheless they put in like a fourth category te- called technology and Andreessen is aware of this which also gets to Stephen's point about how well read he is but he has under the technology section which is the third section and the reason why this manifesto is the way it is I think he says growth is progress it's vitality expansion increased knowledge higher well-being then he says and this is right out of the textbooks there are three sources of economic growth and prosperity. One, population growth. Two, natural resource utilization. Three, technology. And going through those, he says, well, we're actually depopulating. So the growth is not going to come from more people, or at least not a fastest rate of increase as we've seen before. Well, that, of course, just uh, um, treats it as an, an amalgam. We all know that it's not just sheer number of people, but what's the distribution and what part of them are smart brainiacs and things like that. Second thing he says, which is interesting, because it has to do with environmentalism, although he doesn't say it. He says natural resource utilization, this would be the second contributor, has limits. And then he says both real and political. That's interesting, because Mm -hmm. the real part would be something like, well, we have exhaustible resources. You know, we have things we dig out of the ground or eventually going to run out of them. Okay, that's generally true. But the the capitalist method has been to find more and more things under the ground, things we didn't think we have, we really have. But the second one, political, 
He's saying natural resource utilization is limited by politics. Well, that means regulation. That means environmental restrictions and rules. And and to the extent he's saying, well, that's a restriction, he, start, he's, he, he concludes with, therefore, technology is, he, he said, is going to be the sole contributor. You see why, though? If we don't get population growth and we're restrained in various ways from actually getting more natural resources to work with, then the only thing left is tech, and he calls it the only perpetual source of economic growth. So, so just some context and background there as why, not just that he's in the tech field and, you know, might lean in the direction of thinking his field is very important. Of course, it is. It also is from this theory he has of the three constituents or ingredients of growth. Two of them are going to be curbed. This last one is going to be our only hope. So that's another reason why he's focused on it, I believe. Yeah, yeah that's well said. Um, I want to jump in just with, with a couple of things. One is a recommendation. Our uh, colleague at Atlas Society, Robert Trusinski, wrote a very good two-part article uh, in response to uh, uh, Andreessen's techno-optimist manifesto. Oh, so great. for those who are interested in a very, uh, very thoughtful analysis, uh, with, uh, mostly positive, but a few quibbles and uh, here and there, Google uh, just Rob Trusinski, uh, and then Anderson, and it should uh, it should come up. One other question I wanted to put out for uh, for discussion was: often uh, techno optimists tend toward a kind of determinism. The idea being that once we have made certain discoveries technologically, uh, that uh, the machines kind of go of themselves and that once uh, uh, we, we've, we've reached a certain level of critical mass, uh, we can't go back, that the, the machines will build on themselves and we will figure out uh, and, and uh, uh, routinize and turn into commodities the making of machines that will make better machines and so forth. And you see this sometimes in in AI uh, discussions and robotics at a certain point, we'll just be able to outsource, so to speak, innovation to artificial intelligence and then uh, technological progress will go on in the future in a kind of deterministic fashion. So I was on the lookout for whether there was any sign of techno-optimism in, uh, in Andreessen's piece, and I didn't see any. Uh, which I think is encouraging, but it does leave open the question of what we as human beings need to do if we think we are making progress to keep the progress going. And he does uh, you know, indicate some of those things. We, you know, we have to be aware of who the enemies are who might potentially destroy the whole system or cripple it. Uh, we ourselves have to be uh, certain kinds of beings uh, develop our cognitive capacities have a certain kind of character uh, uh, not only to enjoy it appropriately but to be contributors to the ongoing progress so i want to do uh, just ask it as a question um uh, is this uh, a, a more deterministic process or something close do we need to worry too much that it will all collapse yeah, I mean, I, that's a whole <laughs> rich, fascinating uh, uh, vein of, of topic. I mean, I, I've phrased it before as, can there be a new dark ages? Um, 
but uh, also what you're saying about the, uh, the the rate of technological progress, that it's not uh, steady. And, uh, you know, are there things we can do to be increasing it? Is there uh, a certain, um, you know, amount of uh, a rate that people are comfortable with before they start moving to Luddite philosophies? There, there is. Uh, Stephen, uh, apropos your question, I think there is just slightly in the techno capital machine section references to we are inherently inclined to, you know, be technologically curious, advanced, um, quoting here also human wants and needs are endless and entrepreneurs continuously create new goods and services to satisfy. There's not a conditional. Um, there's not a conditionality here. Although, if you pressed him, I'm sure he'd say there isn't. Meaning, well, yeah, if we live in a free society, if people choose values and want their needs and you know wants to be endless. So, like if you said to him, well, in medieval times, humans didn't want uh, you know progress and growth. They were looking for the afterlife. So it, it does require. <laughs> It does require the kind of uh, philosophic uh, pro-reason, pro-earthly views. But um, the, I agree with you. There, it isn't obvious from this essay that he believes it's automatic. In fact, you could say that the very fact that he's arguing for anything and seeing potential impediments like enemies uh, uh, defies that theory, right? If he actually thought it was inevitable and we're going to, you know, succeed anyway, kind of call it the Whig theory of history only applied to technology, ever upward, ever progressing, no real setbacks. Don't worry about it. This thing is on autopilot. Um, that's not his view. I don't think I agree with you. I don't see it in there, but, um, if it were, it would be the kind of argument, it wouldn't need the argument, so to speak. Kind of like when Marx said, capitalism's collapse is inevitable. Okay, then why are you arguing for it? You know, there's no need to there's no need to persuade anybody of right. how terrible how terrible it is. Yeah. So, you know, a follow up question on that. Uh, a lot of my work is in uh, the history of philosophy, history of ideas as they've developed. Um, and if we take the kind of techno optimism that. Uh, Andreasen is uh, is endorsing that starts to come into existence in the 18th century in the 1700s during the age of the Enlightenment, yeah. and then all of the upward economic trends, the upward trends in health and life expectancy, the upward uh, rate of technological advancement, all of that you know, we can map it and chart it from the from the 1700s which raises always the very interesting question of why it happened in the 1700s if uh, you know human beings have been around for 300,000 right. years. Right. Uh, why, if, we, if we've always been you know, the beings with the big brain that we have biologically, if we've been tinkerers, if we've been curious, right, and so on, why is it only in the last you know, 1% of human history <laughs> yeah. right, that uh, finally something has, has happened? So as a philosophy guy, I like to say, well, there was a, a set of philosophical revolutions in epistemology and moral theory and metaphysics, our understanding of human nature that started to happen in the 1500s and 1600s, and those bore fruit in the 1700s, which is why 
the political, technological, and economic revolutions took off then. So uh, then the follow-up question is, well, you know, now that it has taken off and we have a critical mass of people who understand all of that, um, are we in any danger of, uh, of losing that? Is it that those preconditions, cultural, philosophical preconditions, have to be maintained uh, or is it the case that the, uh, the technological and capitalist revolution is like a rocket that uh, you know took off from Earth, but Earth doesn't have to be there anymore? It can uh, it can just go of, of of its own. So that's just another open question on my mind. I mean, I have my my answer to that question, but I want to put it out there. Yeah, and Stephen, when I when I think of that question as well, I think in the case of Andreessen and Arsene, I think part of the limit to speculation on that is what's possible in our lifetime. You know, like, like suppose you could answer that question definitively and say, well, we may lose knowledge of the light bulb or how to build nuclear power plants. And, you know, 150 years from now, people will be saying, what's a nuclear power plant? And we're all in the cold. But some of it has to do with well, what will transpire in my lifetime. And uh, maybe that's why it's it, people don't go there. I wanted to, Scott, just quickly plug uh, one of the morals and markets I did last May. It was the 23rd, and it is on the website at Atlas Society, was um, AI, Promise and Peril. So that was a specifically a, a discussion associated with AI, not technology broadly, but an, a, an optimistic take on my part. But uh, that is available on uh, morals and markets uh, session, May 23rd. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, I do uh, want to encourage people, if you want to comment or have a question, to raise your hand, we'll bring you up. Uh, Lawrence, I think you had something you wanted to say. Thanks, Scott. Hi, Richard. Hi, Stephen. So my question is, we've been talking about what's in the manifesto, but um, I want to get y'all's thoughts on the detractors of said manifesto because I've been I've, I've been looking to see what are the critiques that people have been bringing up and I think uh, neither of you will be surprised by some of the statements that come out um, a lot of them relate to oh he's talking about uh, this this uh, future filled with wealth and more prosperity but then again who is he to say that living in his wealthy mansion while and then they say things like life expectancy is going down or, you know, this technology unbridled by just individuals. Well, that's not going to help society. We need to make sure there's regulation and check. So there's a lot of recurring themes of anti-individual, um, a, a bit of what we might call Luddite-ness towards uh, technology and even envy as well so we're seeing a lot of these trends come out and not really addressing his claims directly in the manifesto but just sort of the same uh tried and true tactics that we've seen from anything in regards to technological process progress yeah uh no i think that's right lawrence uh i did some poking around as well about uh, criticisms and uh most of them came from my perspective from people who are a little more left-leaning, putting the word left in quotation marks or scare quotes. But yes, all of the, uh, you know, the, the, there's a certain amount of envy that comes out in that ad hominem argument. Yeah, you're just a rich guy from Silicon Valley uh, or that it's going to take my jobs away. 
Uh, typically, that's more of a left-leaning concern that uh, a certain category of people won't be able to keep pace, uh, and then the other ones as well. So I wasn't surprised by those, and uh, there wasn't anything particularly powerful. It just seemed a more of a knee-jerk standard set of reactions, at least from what, what I've seen. One thing I was looking for uh, was that there is, on the, uh, putting again in scare quotes, the right side, there are conservatives who also have been uh, a, a little more marginalized, but nonetheless advocates of tradition, advocates of going back to the good old days, not liking capitalism, not liking uh, the, the artificiality of modern society and so on. But I haven't come across any conservative critiques of Andreessen's manifesto. So that might just be uh, that I haven't come across them, or it might be that they haven't uh, encountered Andreessen yet and formulated their responses. So, But to me, I think it will be interesting, since my sense is that uh, conservative traditionalists are, are are reorganizing themselves this generation after having been somewhat in the wilderness intellectually for the past century. So uh, I'm on the lookout for what their responses will be. I, I have found after I read it, I just uh, I waited a couple of weeks and then I just Googled criticism of Andreessen Manifesto. There's just scores and scores of articles. First thing that came to my mind was he has succeeded. Uh, yeah. If this was ignored, then uh, I wouldn't show uh, how you know influential he is or whether he hit the right buttons or not. So whether he intended that or not, the first thing you could say is, well done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so that's a, a good, good, it's good, to, good to have this debate. Fantastic to have this debate. Okay, then the three or four I read, uh, yes, the ones from the left, interestingly, didn't denounce him or critique him on his views of the actual possibilities of tech of technology helping human beings they were much more bothered about his philosophic stuff free markets individualism uh you know unlimited no, no limits to growth let's have a big population so so interestingly uh from that standpoint you didn't get many technicians themselves saying ah the guy doesn't know what he's talking about on ai and you know how many jobs it'll save so i, I find that interesting which means the real battle as we've seen it at the Atlas Society, is philosophical, political. The other mm -hmm. thing, Stephen, is, uh, curiously, yes, I look for some on the right and the conservatives. The conservatives are very worried about this uh, te of technological advance, partly from the standpoint of losing jobs, but that's just the standard economic myth. To the extent any of them hold that, they just don't know how markets work. But some of them will refer to something called transhumanism, and if you if you search by trans transhumanism, the conservatives and the religious people are most worried about this. The idea is these guys like Andreessen are trying to perfect humanity. They're trying to do something like the progressives did with eugenics a hundred years ago. They're trying to, you know, create androids, you know, part human, part machines, and therefore dehumanizing us and and so you can see where, uh, from that standpoint, you know, they're, and they're godlike. You know, they're replacing God, the God of the machine. They're replacing uh, the true, genuine God with these tech gods, these robots that can uh, do all these. Yeah, so that's the, the, 
Sorry, well, the uh, conservatives are more worried about the techno side, and the uh, leftists are more worried about the yeah, market side. Right, right. But they do. I think they do come full circle in the idea of dehumanizing. It's, mm. de it's dehumanizing, or to the extent it's creating superhumans, they're leaving other humans in the dust, and that's unfair. Yeah, something like that. I think that's yeah. I. I think it can be applied to just the life extension movement, but I know some conservatives see it that way. We do have some people up on the stage. Uh, Contra, welcome. Hi. Hi, Scott. Uh, this is JP from Clubhouse. You might remember me. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I... Um... It's well. It's it's first. It's so nice to see to see the Atlas Society now on on X. It's a uh, it's a fresh. Uh, it's a it's it's uh, many of the greater conversations are happening here, and and it's so nice to see you here and the scholars. Yeah. Uh, I think um, I don't know if it was Richard that uh, was taken aback, but one of the statements by the author on mm -hmm. on. Um, Stating that uh, most of the Silicon Valley folks are are left leaning, and uh, I wonder if if you're if you're if if that's actually the case, um, because it's been in my experience that um, that that these crowd from Clubhouse, you know, the, from from the same circles that uh, we we moved around, uh, that they are in fact very very much left. <laughs> And so I, I wanted to uh, clarify whether whether were you aware of this? I, I'm not really aware of the ideological political profile of um, Silicon Valley. So um, I'm just I just pointed out that he said in the manifesto, many of us are left leaning, but by us he meant optimists. So, you know, that breaks it down further. I have, I have no idea. I'm just, I was just surprised that in the manifesto he brought that up because, um, because it seems odd to me that someone would be a tech optimist and left-wing, unless he's describing left-wing as someone who's socially, you know, in civil rights, what, yeah, I what think we that's... call liberal. But, but left-wing usually means anti-capitalist. It usually means a Marxist leaning. It usually means uh, intervention. And and that their view that that view was not that technology is good, but that it's a blood sucking, terrible thing unique to capitalism, and let's get rid of it as soon as possible. And to the extent the environmentalists after the fall of the Soviet Union, the environmentalists kind of adopted that anti-capitalist thing to a greater extent, and a lot of the former socialists went into the green movement. It's just it just seems odd to me that he would classify tech optimists not tech pessimists but he said he said others like us other tech optimists tend to be left-leaning i that i didn't know that i don't know whether he has any polls let on me that. Uh, jump in on that one yeah. uh, i've spent some time interviewing uh, entrepreneurs in silicon valley and studying them and so on and i think it, it is true that they self-describe as as uh, being on the left but it, uh, left, as we know, like right, is a big tent, and it tends in Silicon Valley circles not to mean what uh, philosophically and economically you and I would mean. Mm -hmm. It does typically mean clearly the uh, the uh, the social uh, liberalism. Okay, and they will put themselves on the on the left because when you say to them, "What does the right mean?" 
Well, that means people who are anti-immigrant, they're a little bit racist, they are anti-gay, they want to control your sex life, and we're opposed to that. So if all of that is on the right, then we are on the left. Yeah. And that means being immigrant-friendly, uh, you know, yeah. half, of, half of our new uh, entrepreneurial startups are created by people of different races and, right. Right. and uh, you know, diversity of sexual lifestyles and so on. So it's a, it's a softer social left. At the same time, though, on the economic front, uh, there is a kind of cognitive um, paternalism at work there that most of these entrepreneurs and tech engineer types tend to know that they are smarter than the average person. And they do think that with the right piece of technology and the right uh, people organizing technological systems, that they can show, I don't want to overstate this, uh, the, the ignorant masses the way forward. Uh, and so it's a soft paternalism but nonetheless, there is a kind of hierarchy, a kind of centralization that fits perhaps better with the more progressive left. Uh, and they don't want to go as far as communism and socialism and so on. But nonetheless, it's not that right wing, just leave things open to the free market and everything being bottom up where we don't think that works. That's too anarchic. Yeah, the the other things I, I throw this question out too, Stephen. I wonder what you think about this, or what Andreessen might. One of the reasons I'm a tech optimist, and especially on AI as I research it, is uh, if the brainiacs, for lack of a better phrase, who make these things, um, and they call it artificial intelligence, if you will, if they can as they're starting, they're already doing this, but continue to advance this amazing technology and displace stupidity, displace the non-intelligence that seems to be spreading bottom-up, if you will, say because of bad schooling and bad public schools and things. There's a certain salvation there that we get because um, be precisely because of this. And what, one obvious example would be, we all know the, the checkout person at the grocery store. So those of us old enough to remember the old days, she'd have to count the change, which means she would have to know, you know, the, the currency and the, the subdivisions of it. Well, then they electrified, then, they, then it became electronic, right? And she's just punching the numbers on the screen but you still have to punch the numbers correctly, right? And then as the intelligence goes down, maybe now there's pictures on the screen. So she just punches, you know, the thing looks like a hamburger or meal number six. So, so in other words, there's technological advance, but it means the person using it doesn't have to be as smart. And I'm thinking, thank goodness there is this AI because if the culture is becoming generally less intelligent, maybe we can be saved by the fact that these brainiacs, these engineers, these mechanics and these coders are, are replacing uh, bad human intelligence with artificial and superior intelligence. Any thoughts? Mm. It's part pessimistic, I guess, and part optimistic. It's, a pessimist, <laughs> it's pessimistic about the intelligence level of the broader population but I, I hope you know what i'm getting at 
Yeah, uh, it's pointing in general terms. You know, there's a gap between those who adopt the new skills uh, and the new the mindset that enables them to utilize the the new skills and the new technologies, and those who who fall behind. And the question then whether the technology brings with it a way to save uh, those who fall behind. Uh, uh, in some way or other, and there, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to that question. But I think part of it is that uh, the people who are left behind with respect to one skill set, yeah. is my understanding of the history, they then tend to develop skills in other areas. So the yeah. the woman. Yeah. Uh, uh, stereotypically who's behind the cash register at the grocery store um, she she loses a certain skill set but over the course of a generation that woman goes away and uh, has developed some other skill set that doesn't require math or even recognizing the uh, the numbers on the screen so uh, I think we need better demographics and better historical case studies to be able to answer that question Great. Uh, I do want to uh, give Luke a chance. Uh, thanks for your patience, Luke. Oh, you're you're welcome. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, yes. I, I I was more interested in uh, the Randian take on uh, AI when it becomes a super intelligent species. But I got a house full of dogs and they're they're after right now. So I was more listening. Um, but you're touching on that. Um, because uh, I think I'm quite certain Rand would be 100% in favor of uh, the technological of artificial intelligence up until the point at which uh, we've created a super intelligent species, which is a, which would be then a competitor to humanity. So was curious if anyone had thoughts about that or if that's even relevant to the topic of, at hand. If not, my apologies. I just joined in our first chat. Yeah, I don't know that uh, Andreessen's manifesto speaks to that issue, um, so it might be a little outside the scope of this conversation. But it is a a fascinating one. Uh, my only my uh, quick rejoinder to that sort of thing is uh, whether it would be a competitor. Uh, it could be <laughs> you know, a healthy competitor that would make us better. Uh, that would be a good thing. Uh, or it could be an adversarial competitor. And I think that would depend on what value framework initially gets programmed into it. Uh, I also want to say that that's sort of a general problem because uh, you know, it could be artificial intelligence that evolves uh, in a super intelligent direction, but it also is possible that other natural species can evolve intelligently. I mean, suppose, I don't know, dolphins go through another evolutionary spurt and become even more intelligent than they are and start conceptualizing and doing math and developing technology. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Well, uh, that's worth exploring. Richard, did you want to add to that? No, I'm fine. Okay. Uh, great. Well, uh, yeah, I thank you for that. Um, what, um, how compatible is this with other, 
you know, major people out there take uh, uh, Jordan Peterson. He just had a huge uh, conference in uh, London where he was presenting himself as kind of an anti-WEF. And, you know, is that, is it maybe uh, seem like they, they could work together or just speculating? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. Um like, uh, Jordan Peterson is a, a mixed case on this. Uh, he is a, a man of science and uh, fairly consistently over recent years when he came to prominence, he has uh, been a, a, a fan of the Enlightenment, a fan of capitalism, a fan of free markets, a fan of the technological achievements. Uh, and I know that he did at least the organizing committee at that conference, invite several very good people on energy, uh, including uh, uh, Alex Epstein and uh, um, so several good people on environmental issues and resource economics like Marion Tupi, who also appears on Mark Andreessen's list of, uh, of uh, patron saints. Um, so I think uh, Jordan Peterson in particular would have some overlap the question mark, though, is that uh, Jordan Peterson is also a man of religion and uh, has deep-seated uh, conservative impulses as well. Uh, my, my reading right now is that there is some tension between those two aspects of Jordan Peterson, uh, and I don't know which one uh, is going to, uh, going to prevail or if he'll find a way to integrate them harmoniously. But I do also know at the at the, the London conference there was a strong contingent of more traditionalist conservatives uh, who would be uh, anti-capitalist. Uh, there were quite a few uh, negative things said by prominent panelists and prominent speakers about free markets. You know, the other thing you get from conservatives I've seen is social media would be an example uh, to the extent that is, you know, a, a tech, obviously a tech sector, a tech technique, um, see it as uh, harmful to the nuclear family, seeing it as harmful to face to face interactions, you know, the fakeness. Mm. If I have how many friends you got? I have 3000 friends. No, you don't really have 3000 friends. The fakeness of it. You do see that critique a lot from those concerned with the family, the integrity of the family, the, you know, gather around the dinner table at 630 and become a family. Um, so there's that. The, the other thing is I teach a section of this to my Duke students, and they're all optimists. And I have taught it at least five years in a row. It's not an entire course. It's just a couple sections. And when I ask them, because I have them read pessimists, and when I ask them, why do you think you're optimists? Because it's really overwhelming. It's not even a mix. And many of them will say, interestingly, because we expect to be the ones running the... <laughs> we're the ones who's going to be running the tech and we're not fearful of it because we know it. And it's really interesting because the very prior section might have been on environmentalism and they're four square against nuclear energy. So I'll say, well, hmm. nuclear energy is very technologically advanced. Why are you negative on that, but you know, positive on AI or chat GDP? And, and in regards to Andreessen, even though he's talking broadly about technology, you, you can, if you want, it's kind of interesting, line up the major tech names 
or geek names and ask whether they're optimists or pessimism and why. Because Elon Musk, for example, is a pessimist. And Stephen Hawking was before he died. Now, they were particularly, though, opining on AI. But still, AI is part of tech. And so, and I think Zuckerberg, from memory now, I'm thinking Zuckerberg's an optimist. And so if you just lined up, you know, the ones who were on record, you know, say the top 10, starting with Andreessen, uh, Musk and others, it would be interesting to kind of look for patterns of why are some of them pessimists and why are some of them optimists? I haven't done that yet, but it's, it's an interesting question now that we're seeing them being more vocal. To put out one other uh, dimension, I had a, this is, this is a more, a more a question or an observation uh, that leads to a question. But in uh, Andreessen's uh, manifesto, he mentions the, uh, the cognitive achievements, you know, scientific method uh, uh, and intelligence, and that we have um, made great strides in that area. And so the continued progress of techno-capitalism requires uh, human intelligence to be trained up in each generation and then hopefully improved and then augmented by artificial intelligence. He also, uh, uh, so one of the worries then is going to be, what about all of those who perhaps because we have a dysfunctional education system don't get trained up cognitively and they are then going to fall behind and then we have a big social problem there. Another aspect of this uh, is Andreessen's mentioning it, the importance of certain character traits that uh, uh, people need to be courageous. They need to uh, uh, be pride, uh, proud of themselves. They need to have ambition. Uh, uh, we need to uh, take self-responsibility in our lives. So he's playing up the character that's necessary for a person to be able to live in this technologically advanced capitalist society that's created. And then the worry there is going to be, well, what about all of those people, perhaps because of dysfunctional education or dysfunctional families, they never acquire the character traits. Uh, it's not that they have to be that smart, but they just don't have the character in order to be self-responsible. And so they are going to fall behind. And then again, we're going to have a a social problem to deal with. I wonder if another aspect of it, though, is more aesthetic or at the sense of life level, that what uh, Andreasen is partly doing is telling a narrative uh, that is optimistic, but he's using the language of adventure, of romance, of dancing uh, way, one, one way through life. That another possible gap is in every generation, there are people who go through their teen years and come to adulthood and have that sense of life. And this cuts across their character issues and cuts across their cognitive development issues. Just they have this sense that their life is an adventure, this great quest, and they're going to treat their life uh, uh, in that way versus those who, by the time they come to adulthood, are uh, having a sense that life is misery, that life is a waste of time, they are demoralized, or whatever they try, they're going to fail. Uh, society's going to beat them down, the gods are going to beat them down. So uh, is there then a necessity 
uh, for uh, that sense of life to be widespread enough in the culture for the techno-optimist capitalist movement to succeed, or are we uh, uh, going to have another gap between those who, in their sense of life, just aren't able to cut it in the kind of shining, adventurous, and entrepreneurial life and future that Andreessen is painting? So you're saying that he is uh, using that kind of sense of adventure and dance to to make it more of a sense of life issue. Yes, but also saying that it's it's that kind of person who uh, not only can succeed in that world, but uh, advance that world. It's the adventurers among us. It's the explorers. It's the dancers. It's the the uh, uh, that kind of person who uh, is going to make things move forward. And so the yeah. question then is not uh, in every generation, can we uh, train people to be smart enough and self-responsible enough, but also to have the romantic sense of life enough? I love that insight on the cognitive and the aesthetic, Stephen, and connecting the two, which I'm not sure he entirely does, but I think it's implicit in it, is cognitive confidence goes together with the adventuresome, risk-taking, let's have fun. Yeah. Um, whereas cognitive humility or skepticism to the sense of disarming us intellectually is going to make us fearful, phobic, the precautionary, right. the precautionary principle. So, so uniquely objective, it's right, that these go together whether he fully gets that or not, cognitive competence and uh, what, what was self-esteem, not only the capacity to live, but the war moral worthiness of living going together. You're going to be a much more energetic, aesthetically interested in the finer things of art and the wonderful things of art. I think of movies, actually. So many movies have the pessimism in it from Frankenstein to Jurassic Park, iRobot. On the other hand, movies themselves have become technologically advanced. So, so, so young kids can also see Avatar, you know, and they can also see uh, uh, really spectacular things up on the screen. And um, they're loving that. Um, but I, anyway, I love your point about the cognitive and the aesthetic. It is, it is in Andreessen uh, to some degree. The connection between the two is very interesting. More. Mm -hmm. Richard, I just wanted to go back for a moment to your point about uh, leftist optimism. I mean, is it related to this idea that, you know, many on the left believe that socialism is just our inevitable place and that, you know, we're actually slowly moving that way towards a globalized WEF? Well, I, I, I don't know. I think it's just unfortunate that he used the word left because whole left-right thing is all messed up That's anyway. That's fair. It's yeah, it just doesn't capture it correctly. I think Stephen's absolutely right that that really, um, if these people were truly, you know, philosophic materialists of the Marxist kind, they wouldn't have developed their brains enough to be of any consequence in Silicon Valley. So at some level, you have to believe they believe in intelligence is important. Intelligence is their creative uh, faculty. That's what makes technology possible. Technology is advanced, you know, human achievement, making human life, you know, all that stuff is sounding capitalist. So, um, yeah, I think, I think leftists is, is uh, 
to the extent it's not the Marxist thing, but rather the idea of we're social liberals. Okay, so so are we. We're, we want to be liberal on civil rights and and that kind of thing as well, but also in business. But yeah, they te- apparently tend to lean Democrat. That doesn't mean all Democrats are left wing, but um, yeah, I don't think it's all that important to the manifesto. Wait, he's using the term left. Yes, he is. It's it's when he says, you know, he says at one point, I'm advocating here a material philosophy, not a political one. That alone is kind of weird. No one thought of it as political, but some of it's political. Then he says, and even though some most of us are left wing or something like that. So us refers to techno optimism. And he must know something about the, you know, the political leanings of Silicon Valley more than I do. So I'm just I was an eye opener when I saw that because. Um, but again, I don't think it's central to the success or failure of the manifesto. Not to be too cynical, but I mean, to the extent we're saying he's a maybe a closet Rand fan and maybe he's a closet fossil fuel fan that, uh, you know, maybe he's just seeing the writing on the wall and painting himself as a leftist to just kind of show that he's not against uh, the prevailing. Yeah, he might say the biggest risk coming from that sector or, or from that group is demanding that Washington regulate. AI and curb technological advance for whatever you know mythical reasons he's already sur- uh, suggested. As, as Stephen's point about our well, our point jointly about the gap that potentially exists between the brainiacs and the technologically advanced and those who can heal, handle skilled uh, that are skilled labor versus those who are you know coming out of the public schools and with degraded human capital. The biggest risk, I think, would not be that they can't handle the technology because I think AI is making it easier for them to do so. It's making, as I said before, it's making it easier for dumb people to use advanced technology. I mean, even in the checkout counter example, the last step was there are no checkout uh, people. You check yourself out. How is that possible? Because they made these machines where even stupid customers can check themselves out, which is amazing. But the bigger danger, I think, would be that that large majority, if it is, of uneducated people will vote for politicians who are Luddites. See, then it won't matter whether the brainiacs are brainiacs. It, it, you know what I'm saying? They can try all they want, but if they're overwhelmed by a kind of mob mentality saying, you know, we're going to ban this or that because it's robbing us of jo- all the myths that Mark outlays, that, that's a bigger risk. He doesn't quite say that, that we're endangered of anything not by technology and the robots hurting us, but by a mass deluded uh, public uh, voting us away and our rights away and our technology away in a Luddite-type manner, if that makes any sense. Uh, That makes good sense. Well, thank you. Uh, This has been a great topic. Uh, I'm so glad you both uh, took the time to go into this. There's a lot just cultural implications but um if uh if any of you are in southern california the atlas society is hosting a happy hour tonight from 5 30 to 7 pacific time at spoon's restaurant in fountain valley and uh tomorrow at 7 30 p.m eastern Stephen will be the featured scholar at our fountainhead book club this is going to be section three on Gail Winand. Uh, you can register for that at uh, atlassociety.org under events. So um, just uh, 
thank you both again. Um, any final thoughts? Uh, <laughs> lots, actually, but unfortunately, we're out of time. This has been a very uh, enriching discussion. Thanks for hosting, Scott. And thanks for your insights, Richard. Yes, thank you as well, Stephen. And my final thought is I really think it's wonderful that this manifesto came out and that it got reaction and that it has stimulated a debate and conversation. I just think it's healthy in that regard. Very good. And I'm glad you guys pointed it out as something worth talking about. I totally agree. Great. So thank you. Thank you so much, Scott, for organizing this. Great questions. Absolutely. Thanks for everyone who joined. Take care, everyone.